Welcome to the Energy Pioneers Podcast, a show dedicated to the legacy of the pioneers of the offshore oil and gas industry. I'm energy historian Jason Terrio. Each podcast episode features the stories of industry pioneers whose leadership, grit, and technological expertise built the modern offshore industry in the Gulf of Mexico and around the world. For more than two decades, the Oilfield Energy Center in Houston has honored these legendary men and women by inducting them into the OEC's Hall of Fame. The stories you will hear are from the Hall of Famers themselves, whose original interviews have been digitally remastered and preserved for posterity. In this episode, we feature one of the pioneers of offshore drilling and production, Mark Childers, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2013 and was interviewed at that time by renowned historian Joe Pratt. Mark Childress had a storied career in the industry, first with Humble, then with Otico. He came from a family steeped in education. His mother had three degrees, and his father was a university professor, so the bar was set high for Mark at a young age. He received civil engineering degrees from Virginia Tech, and after multiple interviews with several companies, he took his first job with Humble Oil and Refining Company, now ExxonMobil. He arrived in New Orleans with his young family in September of 1965, just as Hurricane Betsy came plowing ashore packed with 150 mile-per-hour winds. It was a hair-raising introduction to life along the Gulf Coast. From there, he jumped right into the hot seat as a young petroleum engineer eager to learn about the ever-evolving offshore oil and gas industry. There was a real shortage of petroleum engineers, and so the attitude was, we'll go find other engineers. They were in the top 15% from good schools and then train them. And that's what uh, most of the big majors did. And I stayed with Exxon six and a half years, and during that six and a half years, I must have gone to 20 schools. I ended up teaching at some of them. Uh, I changed jobs uh, six or seven, eight times. Worked in uh, New Orleans, three or four jobs. Went to Houston, worked in headquarters. Went out to the research center, then went to California, worked on the Santa Barbara Channel, the North Slope. This is all as a young engineer with the attitude they were going to train us, which I am forever grateful because they did a tremendous job, all the schools, all the exposure going offshore. I think it's one of the big things that's lacking in this age. They just do not train engineers like they used to. They, they kind of put them in a, this is what you're going to do for the next five to ten years. I've talked to many engineers in my career recently, and these fellows, some of them have never been offshore, never seen what they're designing, never seen what they're operating. And, and you can't get everything on a computer or a book. You have to go see it. Mark entered the field in 1965, which was a pivotal transition for the industry. By then, companies had ventured out beyond the 100-foot water depth in the Gulf of Mexico and went even deeper than that in offshore California. New technological advances came online in spades. There was a lot of creative freedom and positive energy with companies trying all new sorts of ideas, some failing, some succeeding. But these ideas always advanced the industry forward. It was an exciting time to be a young engineer working on offshore EMP projects. I went to work in 1965, fresh out of school. Uh, the offshore industry, depending on when you wanted to find it, was very young, only 10, 15 years at the most. 
the technology was evolving. Uh, Jackups were very shallow, 80 feet, 100 feet, maybe a little bit more than that. Floating drilling was in California, but not in the Gulf to speak of, or just starting. The ocean driller uh, came out in 63. The Blue Water one, which was the first semi-submersible, came out in 61. So it was a real evolution. I mean, people really didn't know how to do it. Just go out and figure it out and do it. And that's one of the amazing things about this industry is we are just tremendous solving solvers of problems. I don't think I've seen any other industry that, like this industry just go out there and do it and try to solve the problems and do a good job. And it's one of the main characteristics of this industry. So anyway, when I was in New Orleans, I I uh, was in the drilling business first, and then the workover, then did reservoir engineering, production engineering, all within two years. This training, yeah. went to a bunch of schools. Uh, loved going offshore. Uh, it was just all brand new to everybody. Humble had their own helicopters, had their own oh. camp down in Grand Isle. The superintendents were God, and they let you know it. <laughs> And uh, the first time I went on drilling rig, it was the Marone 152 platform rig. I went up with a drill floor. Of course, they know here is a real worm, as they used to call people like me. And uh, they were all French, Cajuns. Oh, yeah. So they all spoke Cajun French. And I think they could speak English, but they just razzed <laughs> me something terrible. Mm. And as what happened, Conoco, which was about 10 miles away, had a blowout. So I'm standing there looking at this thing and saying, well, they must be bringing a well in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't bringing a well in, it blew out. <laughs> they brought it in. You know, they brought it in unexpectedly. <laughs> yeah. So that was my first experience offshore. I rode out on a boat, got seasick, and um, that was in the fall of 65. Following a stint in New Orleans, Mark was transferred to a company headquarters in Houston, where he worked under the vice president of production. For a time, he worked as an engineer and researcher at the SO Production and Research Center on the upstream side. He also worked at Offshore California and the Santa Barbara Channel, a hotbed of technological innovation in the industry where companies were drilling in over a thousand feet of water. Amazing water depths of a thousand, twelve hundred, thirteen hundred feet. I mean, it just couldn't believe it. We were drilling that deep water. A whole lot of new technology was developed at that time, which I was involved in. Uh, most of it just brand new, never been done before. So, I mean, they had four floating rigs and all this new equipment and how to drill in deep water and drill from a floating drilling rig. And I was chairman of an industry, a JIP, Joint Industry Project, that had a, uh, which is almost unthinkable these days, had a Strontium 9, Strontium 90 nuclear energy device on the BOP stack. And it ran the pumps. Not very well, but it did have enough energy to run yeah. it. And that was the thinking at that time. Can you imagine them ever running something like that today? But that was the mentality at that time, you know. And that's what I did at headquarters, was all development. It was a development group of about 10 of us, and we all had various specialties and projects. And the whole idea was we were developing new technology and Humble at that time wanted to uh, be part of the forefront. 
but it's just exciting, and I enjoyed it. I, I have enjoyed my career in the oil field. I don't know how I could have done anything else. They always say when you're here long enough, you have about 5% crude pumping through <laughs> your veins. Mark eventually left Humble and went on to have a 20-year career with Otico, one of the global leaders in offshore drilling. I knew uh, my, my ex-boss with Humble was working for Otico, and uh, so we went back to New Orleans and spent 20 years in New Orleans with Otico, which was a great company. A real pioneer. They, they, they have come up with more things and been less recognized than about anybody I know in the drilling business. Otico was founded by another industry legend, Doc Laborde, who was one of the first pioneers to be inducted into the Hall of Fame many years ago. Laborde's story will be featured in an upcoming episode of the Energy Pioneers podcast. Otico and its leaders had a frontier mentality about offshore and they developed many firsts for the industry. They were the first to build a semi from the ground up. One of the first to have a semi-submersible, or the submersible, Mr. Charlie. They were the first to have a self-propelled uh, semi-submersible, the Ocean Prospector. Uh, one of the pioneer technologies we're gonna recognize tonight, umbilical cords, yeah. the first ones, uh, pilot-operated umbilicals were put on the Ocean Driller by Texaco, Odico. We designed our own rigs, developed a lot of our own technology. If we saw a need, we figured it out and went out and did it. And that's how I did a lot of uh, innovative work on equipment and procedures. I mean, it's hard to explain to somebody in these times how raw the industry was. I mean, a lot of it, you just sort of put one foot in front of the other until something went wrong or right and then you did corrective measures. Today, everything's much more planned. Risk is a constant uh, on everybody's mind, particularly since Macondo, who I, which I worked on. And um, it was just an entirely different atmosphere. It was a lot of fun. The, uh, I'm looking at the uh, nomination forms. Chief Engineer, in 1977, as a company like Otico, must have been a pretty good job. So it was about 100 people. That's yeah. back when we were designing our own rigs. So you were having a lot of fun. You were getting, oh, getting yeah. your hands dirty. <laughs> yeah. Yep, sure was. And then it said uh, a big uh, commitment to training engineers. Is that at all a humble uh, from your own career? Well, when I first was humble, it was a major thing. We know they yeah. were hiring people and trying to train them. They were losing a lot of them. Once they got trained, they'd go to a smaller oil company yeah. or to a supplier or another drilling contractor, which is what I ended up doing. And uh, But at that time, we needed more technology. See, we in that period, a, a tool pusher, a superintendent, was a guy that came up through the ranks, almost all of them. Then it became more and more technical, and it got to where the a lot of them could, some of the smartest people I've worked with have been non-educated. Yeah. But they had, they were just very sharp. And they could pick up a lot of this technology. But most of the people that are blue collar, that worked with their hands and came up through the ranks, uh, it was really hard for them to grasp a lot of this higher technology. And things were a lot simpler in yeah. the 50s. 60s 
70s they started getting a little bit more complicated and in the 80s which we started what we call a drilling engineer trainee uh, we said we just got to get some uh, younger people in here that have education that can absorb a lot of this technology quicker than spending 20 years in the field Mark got involved in so many aspects of developing new technology and offshore drilling from mobile drilling units to mooring applications for vessels all the way to FPSOs and the subsea wells. Well, for some reason I got interested in subsea equipment and maybe the start of it was the acoustic BOP project, which is the Stromsian 90 thing that Hugh Elkins yeah. talked about. And from that, we, we did a lot of testing out at his, where he worked. And I got real interested in the equipment and that we were basically taking land equipment and trying to make it work offshore. And then when you put it underwater, it gets a little bit more complicated. And like one of the things we found out that the annular preventer, something called a hydrill GK preventer, was not very suited to put underwater. And so we got with, or I did, got with a hydrill and we designed what they call the GL annular, which is balanced pistons and all that. That's kind of how the thing went. You know, so, oh, got a problem here. It's yeah. done work. So, well, we'll get with a vendor. Here's what we need to do, and uh, so that was a, a blow-up vendor that's been is still being used, but it, we developed it in the early 70s because we needed it. We were going in deeper water, and that land annular just didn't work. Uh, another thing we did was uh, diverter systems. Uh, I worked with uh, Regan Offshore, Bruce Watkins, who is also being inducted this time, tremendous engineer ex-shell engineer and he he's, he died about 13 years ago but he was a, one of the best engineers I've ever run across as far as designing he came up through the shell group in the 60s there was about <laughs> 10 or 12 of them and he was one of them and they're all in the whole thing <laughs> and they're about all in the whole group. thing because they were that yeah. shell and Hummel were the and Chevron were the big innovators that would really go out and try something new Believe it or not, the original floating drilling was done in California, not in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. The Western Explorer was the first ship or floater that put a blow-up preventer on the bottom of the ocean. That was in 1955. So they had a lot of technology in California, and they had uh, a lot of floating drilling going on way before the Blue Water one. But the reason people kept it a secret is that it was, uh, they feel it was an advantage in lease sales. If you knew how to do something and your competitor didn't, then you had an advantage in a lease sale. Now, a lot of that's gone away recently. <clears throat> but back in the, I can remember in the, eight, in the 60s and 70s when lease sales came up, they didn't want you to talk about anything you were doing yeah. because if a competitor particularly a smaller one. If they didn't know how to, say, drill in 3,000 feet of water, Couldn't be it, yeah. we don't want to tell them how. Yeah. So, Some of that in California, would it have been that it just got deeper quicker there and they had to figure out how to go deep? Well, California is interesting from the standpoint that um, in the <clears throat> late 40s, they were allowed to core for geological information. Mm -hmm. And they had these little old barge ships, 
from World War II, 200 feet long maybe, and they drilled over the side. And the <coughs> California people, the government, allowed them to drill until they hit oil. Then they had to immediately cement. So they were poking around out there. And finally they had, uh, I think it was in 54, or I forget what year it was, the state then allowed them to lease, the state lease and drill for oil and gas offshore, deep enough where they had to have a floating rig. The original offshore, believe it or not, people say it was in California about 19 or 1885. And it was a pier going yeah, out. And they drilled directionally yeah. with whip stocks and things like that. And that's how, if you wanted to find offshore, it started in California. And then they just kept building these wooden, then they went to steel. The first steel jacketed was in California. And things really didn't start rolling in the Gulf Coast to any appreciable amount until the 40s after the war. But California was really where most of this technology, I know these Texans don't like to hear that, but that's where most yeah. of this got started and the stuff was magnificent. Humble went out and uh, drilled a well in California in 640 feet of water in about 65. Yeah, And that was just unimaginable. And some of the equipment they had, I've heard some people talk about it. It's a wonder that they stayed together. Yeah. <laughs> but when they went back, three years, two years later, they had the whole thing engineered. Marvelous. They did a great job. Vetco, Regan, Humble, Chevron, Shell to a lesser extent in, <clears throat> out in California. But those four did amazing things in the late 60s. Throughout his career, Mark had the opportunity to work alongside many dedicated and highly capable engineers, technicians, and drillers. Some became his close friends. Denny Ducker, a longtime drilling manager for Otico, who worked under Mark for many years, said that he was well respected by clients and employees alike. He treated everyone fairly, so long as they, in turn, were honest and did the best at their job. Mark respected the customers, but the safety of the rig and the rig personnel always took precedence with him. Denny commented about his former boss and close friend, he is a super individual to me, Denny said. He stood for what was right and I enjoyed working for him. Mark mentored many young engineers, including John Knowlton, who graciously agreed to appear on this program. Welcome, John. Thank you, Jason, for having me on the Energy Pioneers podcast and giving me the opportunity to talk about Mark Childers, one of the pioneers of the industry who played a key role in Otico's success and later Atwood Oceanics. I would like to credit Mark with a major influence on my career as I was among many engineer trainees that were hired out of college by Otico in the early 80s. Our training involved working offshore half our time and the other half in the office or in outside training courses for the first two plus years. This training period ended about the time for the 1986 oil price collapse and offshore activity dramatically slowed. I, along with several other engineers from this program were given various office-based roles supporting operations. These next five to six years, I was working under Mark's leadership most of the time. 
These were tough times for offshore drillers, but activity was slowly improving, but with fierce competition for all work. Mark was very tough on everyone under his influence and held everyone, especially engineers, to a very high technical standard, but also business standards. He was actually an expert on many aspects of our unique business, but competent in all of it. I was fortunate to be given multiple areas of responsibility and was exposed to most of the business during this time. Mark would have to approve virtually every expenditure or proposal. Sometimes there was a line outside his room. After getting a few rejections, I learned quickly that it's better to be technically correct and have the very best price every time. He had an almost photographic memory, so if you brought him a proposal, he would catch it if the price had gone up even a little from, say, six months ago. Mark, like almost all of the managers then, were very loud and tough with their guidance, reminding me of high school and college football coaches. I thrive on that kind of leadership. Mark was tough on everyone under his influence, but he was very supportive and protective if you truly gave it your all. In the last half of my career with Insco, I managed to work my way up into senior management and a company officer, and can say that Mark's leadership and mentorship were really key in building my knowledge, skills, and confidence to take on these larger and larger roles. It is also remarkable to me how Mark was able to be such an effective hands-on leader, and while being a prolific supporter of the industry through publishing technical papers, participating in virtually all the related oilfield industry committees. Thank you, Jason, for giving me this short segment on your podcast and show my appreciation for Mark and for all his well-deserved recognition for his pioneering achievements and lifetime support of the industry. Well, I think, uh, first of all, in my era, particularly in the early and middle, was just a wonderful time working with wonderful people to solve problems and advance an industry that was in its infancy. I enjoyed it so much. Uh, it wasn't all easy, and some bad things happened, some blowouts, accidents. Uh, rigs sank back then. Hardly, now you hardly ever hear one have a problem. The important thing 50 years from now is that the America, and America did this, that it was not until the 60 into the 70s that say the Norwegians and Brits got involved and lesser extent the Australians. So this is really an American evolution by Americans and um, they did it. Yeah. We did it. And uh, I hope 50 years from now there's the freedom on other things. Who knows what it's going to be that um, we can progress ahead, and I think there will be. I'm, I'm basically a very optimistic. I, I, people often ask, well, what's so special about America? Because we're made up of people from Europe, Asia. So yeah. they were there, and now they're here. What's the difference? And I think it's this optimism we have and the ability to try to go solve problems and take risks where a lot of people can't for whatever yeah. culture they have or government and I hope we keep that it worries me sometimes when I see the government clamp down so hard and I see a little bit too much of that but I once again I think America has this tremendous ability to correct itself and if this gets yeah. a little bit too out of hand I think you'll see things back up and that, I think the ability to correct ourselves and go forward is something no other country I've seen have. 
the importance of the American energy industry to our way of life and our national security cannot be overstated. Yet the benefits and achievements of this industry to American society are often taken for granted, if not outright vilified. In the latter years of his career, Mark Childers became a spokesman for the industry, a task which he found both rewarding and challenging, particularly in recent times. I guess it really took root in about 81 when I was a distinguished uh, lecturer for the SPE, and that was back when they didn't have very many of them. Today they got loads of them, yeah. but back then there was only four or five of us. And that's when I started going throughout the whole country, I mean, from California to Midland to Washington, D.C. to New York. Uh, this topic I had, which was uh, offshore drilling rigs, I'm not sure that's exactly the title. And you go around and you uh, give this speech to people, a lot of them had never even seen a rig or knew what it was, and you soon find you're speaking for the industry. I mean, I have one little side story that I think might be interesting. I was given this distinguished lecture thing, and I had the, uh, I'd flown to Washington, D.C. to give it to the press corps in Washington, then was going to go to New York and give a speech. And lo and behold, I showed up Sunday, and that's when the Ocean Rangers sang. Which 83 people, I was Odeco rig, still get chills when I think about it. And 83 people lost their lives. Well, here I am, supposed to give a speech. What in the world am I going to say? And this is the press corps. So, you know, they're all sitting there ready to... And we talked it over and said it was probably worse to not go than to go. And so I got up and said that, you know, tragedy had happened. We really don't know much about it. Lost the rig, lost some people, and that's about all I can say about it. And they respected it both in Washington and uh, New York. But what a spot to be in when you say you're going to speak for the industry. Because here I was in about the most yeah. active press bunch you're going to see. Getting back to spokesman for the industry, I think the industry in general just has to talk more about what energy does for this country and their way of life. We, the industry needs to talk more about not so much the companies, what does energy do for the consumer? And if, the, if we can get them starting to relate to what it does for them, I mean, they can't wear anything, they can't eat yeah. anything, they, medicine, uh, all the plastics, all, all, every, there's not a thing in this room that energy didn't yeah. have something to do with. This, this society, our civilization, would not exist without it. This concludes this episode of the Energy Pioneers Podcast. I'm the host, Jason Terrio. Stay tuned to more episodes, and be sure to check out the Oilfield Energy Center's website at OceanStarOEC.com, where you can find the full listing and stories of the Offshore Hall of Fame. And if you ever come to Galveston, Texas, be sure to visit the Ocean Star Offshore Drilling Rig Museum. Thanks for listening.